1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, if you were with us last week, you know, finishing up chapter 4, we focused on the subject of death. And specifically, we looked at what happens in the future, what happens when we die, what happens when Jesus returns, and, and how does it all work together. And uh, what we focused on were five truths that the Apostle Paul touches on that offer us encouragement and comfort after death, as well as hope for the future. And what we saw is that Christians have, God reve- have God's revealed promises of life after death. Nobody is qualified to talk about what happens after we die uh, because uh, no one's able to come back and tell us what happens after we die. But God is able to do that and has done that. And so we have his revealed promises. And these promises give to us the hope of Jesus' return. They give to us the hope of resurrection uh, to life. They give us the hope of a future rapture of the church and of reunion with those loved ones who have died in Christ and union with Jesus ultimately. And so this is what we looked at last week. And today we're transitioning from the question of what happens after we die. Today we're going to focus on what should be happening with us right now. In other words, I'll put this on screen for you. How should the promise of your future impact your practice here in the present? And so we jump right into it, First Thessalonians chapter 5, <clears throat> Paul says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, right here, that Paul is isolating two groups. There's two groups that are reflected here in our text. There's you, and there's them, right? Look at verse 2. He says, for you yourselves know. Now, he's writing to the Thessalonians, but who is he writing to? He's writing to believers, those who have invited Christ to be their Lord and Savior. And that's the you here. And, and the them is, is everybody who've, who have rejected Christ. And so what he says is, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they, those that have rejected Jesus Christ, say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So there's the you and there's the them. And... Paul making this great distinction between uh, the future that Christians have versus the future that non-Christians have. Um, point he's making simply, you know what to expect, they don't. Uh, and so uh, Paul continues verse 4 and he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore... Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together With him, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. If you're taking notes, Paul touches on two key practices that are impacting uh, our our present. In other words, he's, he's detailing two key practices that answer the question, how should the truth of your future impact your practice in the present? 
And again, so if you're taking notes, the first point, expectation. Paul is emphasizing expectation. Your, the knowledge, the truth of your future should impact the practice in the present through your expectation. Uh, the idea is simply this, that expectation of the coming day of the Lord should impact how you live your life today. Now, that brings up the question, what is the day of the Lord that Paul talks about here? Well, first of all, understand that when the Bible uses the word day, it can refer to a 24-hour period or it can refer to a specific period of time which God accomplishes his specific purposes in. I'll give you an example from Scripture. Genesis 2, verse 3, tells us that God blessed the seventh day and sanctify it. Now, that day refers to a 24-hour day. Um, but then in the very next verse, Genesis 2, 4 says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, that refers to a longer period of time, specifically a seven-day uh, you know, period or a one-week period. And so 20, when, when God says days, it can be a 24-hour period, it can be uh, a longer period. And so when Paul here uses the day of the Lord, what, what he's referring to is a specific time, a, sp a sp specific time when God will judge the world and when God is going to pour out his wrath on the nations who reject him. And I want you to notice also in our text that Paul indicates that there are times and seasons that are leading up to that day. Jesus was asked in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24, he had referred to the destruction of the temple and his disciples came to him and um, they had what they thought was one question. It was actually a series of questions unbeknownst to them. They, they said, hey, when is this going to be? Uh, when's, when's this going to happen? What are, what are going to be the signs of your coming and the signs of the end of the age? Now, really, several questions wrapped into one. They thought it was the same thing. So Jesus proceeded to answer them. And basically, during that answer, what he articulated to them was what the times and the seasons would look like leading up to Jesus' second coming and his pouring out of wrath and so on. And these times and seasons, Jesus articulated specifically so that believers could live with an expectation, because that is what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to understand that the Lord is returning, that it can happen at any moment, can happen before I'm even done with this message, and we should then let that information inform how we live, how we conduct ourselves. And so Jesus said, hey, listen, let me describe the general world conditions for you. He said that there's going to be false prophets, there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars. He said that nations are going to rise against nations, that there's going to be famines and diseases, and there's going to be earthquakes in various places. He talked about how many will be offended. Boy, do we live in that day and age now, right? I'm offended, right? Many would be offended. The love of many would grow cold. Christians would be hated and betrayed. The, the lawlessness would abound. And notice in verse 3, Paul likens this to labor pains. Jesus himself also likened these signs to labor pains. Now, what's the key thing about labor? There is a regularity, and it comes in, the, the labor pains come in increasing regularity. They, the, the intensity increases as you progress through your labor. I remember when Brenda was pregnant with Megan, our oldest, who's almost 35. She'll be 35 on her next birthday, so I feel old. Um, 
But um, she, we had gone, this is how old I am, we went through Lama's class before Brenda, and she's a rock star, man. She didn't have any of the, you know, the, 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 the drugs that, you know, they give women now. My daughter, when she was given birth, she's like putting on her makeup, you know, because she's got all the, all the drugs on board, you know, but, um, but Brenda, she went through it like without, but, um, but she's, you know, going through labor, and we're there in the hospital, and, you know, the, the, the labor pains, they're, you know, 10 minutes apart, and they last for 30 seconds, and then they're eight minutes apart, and then they're six minutes apart, you know, and so I start doing the breathing steps with her. I'm like, you know, the, and then and there's the, like, and there's all these different things you do. I can't even remember what it was, um, but, uh, but I'm going through the, the okay, Brenda, here's, here's how you do it. And she's like, I'm past that. And then I go to the next one, I'm past that. And I go to the next one, she's like, I'm past that. I go, baby, the only thing left is to push. Yeah, call the doctor, you know. And out comes Megan, you know. And, and so this is what Paul says. He says, these, these signs, they're going to come, they're going to they're happen, they're going to be increasing in intensity and in regularity. And uh, certainly this describes the world in which we live in today. But Paul emphasizes in verse 4, You, brethren, are naughty in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. What Paul says is this. Look, sudden destruction awaits those who reject Jesus Christ, but as sons of light, as, as sons and daughters of God, saved by the person and the work of Jesus on the cross, God hasn't appointed us to wrath. Uh, our appointment is to be with Christ either in rest or in rapture. And this is what Paul says in verse 10. He says that whether, uh, whether we wake or sleep, that we should live together with him, with Jesus Christ. And of course, we looked at that extensively last week. And so Paul says, here's the point, there should be an expectancy in how we live. And specifically, look again at verses 6 and eight, six through 8. Paul says this. He says, Therefore, living with this expectancy, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. I want you to take note here because what Paul is doing is he's using two descriptions to contrast what it looks like to, to be somebody who's living in expectancy. He's basically saying, let me give you a picture of what living expect in, in expectancy doesn't look like. And he basically, twice he uses the word or the description of being asleep and three times he uses the description of being drunk. Now, metaphorically speaking, I have a perfect illustration for this, and I've told this story before, so you, so you, you, you probably heard it, but, but let, me, let me tell it anyway. So when I was growing up, I, I was raised in a Christian home, but as a teenager, I rebelled, and I, I sort of walked away from God. I didn't renounce my faith, but in practice, I did. Um, I... I, I partied and, and, and drank with my friends, and on, on one particular occasion, I'd gone up camping with a bunch of friends up to Kennedy Meadows, which is in the High Sierras, and, uh, and, and we, we were just, we were drinking heavily, 
And I drank so much that I blacked out. Now, I'd like to say that that's the only time that that happened, but at that season of my life, I called that Tuesday. And so I, you know, we're just, and it's towards the winter time. It's really cold at night. And so all, last thing I remember is just, you know, drinking shots with my friends. And the next thing I remember, I, I wake up and I'm in the darkness in my chonies and I have no idea where I'm at. And it's, and it's close to freezing at that point. And so, so I'm in a world of hurt. I have no idea where I'm at, where my tent is, where the safety is. I could, I could die in, in this state. And so I cried out to God, have mercy on me. And, uh, and by his grace, he did. Uh, I could have gone in any direction. I just happened to, to turn and walk into the direction of where my tent was and got into the warmth and safety of my tent, and I, and I lived to tell the tale. And I'd love to tell you that that was the thing that woke me up and got me back on, on the straight and narrow. It, it took several years after that uh, for the Lord really to get a hold of my heart. But what happened to me? I was asleep, I was drunk, and I was walking in darkness. Here's my question for you. Spiritually speaking, is this you? Is this you? Are you sleepwalking through life? Are you walking in darkness? Are you intoxicated by the things of the world and, and the, they have you in a place where, man, it's time to wake up? See, that's the thing. We have to understand that this is, this is a grave concern here. This is, this is the opposite. And Paul says, look, there's people living that way. They're not living in expectancy of God's return. They're not letting the hope of the future inform how they're living in the present. Paul gave a similar warning to the Ephesians. He said this. He said, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. He said, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He said, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are are evil. And in the very next verse, he goes on to say this. Or, well, two verses later, he says, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when Paul says that in verse 18, not to be drunk with wine, certainly the Bible teaches against that. And certainly we are not to be drunk with wine, but that's not the main emphasis of that verse. That is given as a contrast for what is the main emphasis. The main emphasis of that verse is that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, let me ask you a really dumb and obvious question. How do you get drunk? You drink alcohol. How do you stay drunk? You keep drinking alcohol. And when he says to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, look, rather than becoming intoxicated... You should be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And when he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, in, in the Greek, the imperative is, be being filled. It's active and it's ongoing. You see, so many people, man, they belly up to the bar, literally and figuratively, of this world, and they're intoxicated and they are influenced in a way that affects how they're living in expectancy. And rather than living in an expectant state, they're, they're, they're intoxicated, they're numb to it, they're asleep. The reality of things are going on. 
So the first practice that Paul is emphasizing here that impacts your practice in the present is that we need to live with this expectation. The second practice that he emphasizes, we see it in verse 11. This is a simple thing, edification. Edification, that's our second point. Look at verse 11. He says, therefore, comfort each other, and here it is, edify one another just as you also are doing. Now, understand that word edify, it means to build up. It means to build up. And the idea that Paul is conveying here to specifically to the Thessalonians, he's conveying this thought that as we build up others, that God builds us up. That's the idea. I love what David Guzik said in his commentary. He says, when we have our first interest in building up other Christians, then God will edify us. God will build us up as we build others up, is his point. He says, the idea is of, is a, is of a church full of active participants, not passive spectators. This is the idea. This is the implication. Listen, there is a huge difference between being an active participant in the body of Christ and being a passive spectator in the body of Christ. One is a consumer mentality and the other one is a contributor mentality. And I, I want you to hear this. I'm going to expand on this, but I want you to hear it with the right heart, the right voice, going through the right grid as you receive what I'm about to say. What I am about to say is so important to your life. It's important to your life because God wants to do a work in you and part of the work that he wants to do in you is as you make yourself available to him and you allow him to work through you. You will experience a dynamic of growth and connectivity that, that, that you can't imagine when you make yourself available to the Lord. And so often what happens is that when we come to church, we don't come as an active participant of a family, we come as a passive spectator. And let me ask you about your own family. Do you want your kids acting as passive spectators in your family, or do you want them to be an active participant in your family? It's a dumb question. Of course you want them to be an active participant in your family. Now, our kids don't always want to do that. I used to deal with that with my kids at home. You know, what do kids want to do? Kids want to, kids want to have everything revolve around them, right? That's what they want. And I would tell my kids all the time, your mom is not your maid. You have a role here. You're a member of this family, and we all have a part to play. You see, if you come to church with a consumer mentality and not a contributor mentality, well, then your attitude is that the church exists to serve you. It's like a mommy-baby relationship or a business transaction. You think about a mommy-baby relationship. What does the baby do? The baby's a consumer. That's all they do. I got 10 grandkids. My newest one, Jet, is five months old. He contributes nothing to the family. <laughs> Except for we love him like crazy. This is a baby grandkid. But listen, he's a consumer. And listen, we expect Jet to do that. Why? Because he's a baby, right? That's the season that he's in. But listen, babies are supposed to grow up, right? And so we want our babies to grow up. We want them to be an active participant, an involved member of the family. And, and so when you, when you come to church with a consumer mentality, then, you know, that's, that's the way babies act. 
right? And it's okay to be a baby for a season, but we want you to grow up. That's the attitude. That's the idea. And some of you are going, oh, we heard the announcements for they need, you know, servants and these different things. And this is all Pastor Ted with an agenda. Understand, yes, we do need people to do those things. And yes, that's supposed to be all y'all. We'll get, we'll get into that, you know? But my job as your pastor is to equip you for the work of the ministry, and my job as a pastor is to exhort you to the things of God. You cannot go through the New Testament in a serious study of the New Testament and not come away realizing God's building a family. And when we talk about the church, it's not some corporate entity. It's, it, it's, it's people. That's what the church is. And it doesn't matter how many people you add to the church, we are just a growing family, and a family, every member of the family has, has roles to play. And so sometimes people will come with a consumer act, the consumer mindset and, uh, you know, mommy-baby relationship or, you know, a business transaction. Think about a business transaction at its most base level. What's it all about? It's about the consumer. The consumer says, how can I give the least amount of my time, the least amount of my money, the least amount of my effort and get the best return? Right? And, and that's the, 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 the thought process in a, in a business transaction. And some Christians are consumers with that mindset. How can I give the least amount of my time, my money, and my effort, get the best return? I want the best children's ministry. I want the best worship. I want the best programs. But the mindset is I'm going to approach it like a consumer and I'm going to give the least. Where can I get the most return for the least amount of investment? That's not biblical. Jesus did not establish the church for us to come to church as consumers. He established it for us to come as contributors. I've got verses. I've got verses. <clears throat> Peter said this, 1 Peter 4.10, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as, listen, good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What is a steward? A steward is somebody who has been entrusted with something that belongs to another. Okay? Your life does not belong to you. It belongs to God. The Bible says you've been bought at a price and you're supposed to glorify God in your body which belongs to God. So you don't belong to you. Your time doesn't belong to you. Your money doesn't belong to you. Your kids don't belong to you. Your friendships don't belong to you. Your job doesn't belong to you. Your house doesn't belong to you. Who you are and the gifts and talents that you have don't belong to you. This is my time. No. You belong to God. And so what Peter says is, look, you have to be mindful of the fact that God's gifted you. And you have to treat those gifts as a steward. Paul told the Ephesians, he himself, the Lord God, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. Understand what Paul is saying there. Hey, he calls and raises up pastors and leaders within the church. What's our job? To equip you. To do what? To do the work of the ministry. You see, it's not, oh, hey, you're, you're, you know, you're a pastor, you do the work. Well, yeah, I got work to do, so do you. We're all part of the same family. That's the idea here. See, a contributor mentality understands that the pastors and the elders exist to equip you to serve other people. 
A contributor does not ask, how can I give the least amount of my time? How can I give the least amount of my money? How can I give the least amount of my effort and give the get the best return? A contributor asks, how can I give my money? How can I give my time? How can I give my talents? How can I give my capabilities and get the best return? Where is it that I can help bring unity and health to our church family? You see, one's just a business, the other one's family. One's just a baby who needs to grow up. The other one is a maturing member of the household of God. Here's my question for you. Which one are you? Which one are you? Now, let me, let me help you understand. People, this is, this is not a have to. This is a get to. We get to be involved in the work that God is doing here. We get to, I'm at the, sea, the age and the season in ministry now where I see kids that we had in our nursery that are now serving Jesus and, and leading other people to Jesus Christ. And, and I go, I got to play a part in that. That is so incredibly encouraging to me. We're at the season here in our church we look at the church in the book of Acts, which we model our church after as we're establishing it, and, and the priorities that they had, we've tried to make our own. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. They made teaching the word a priority. They made prayer a priority. They made, made relational connection a priority so that they could spur one another on towards love and good deeds and, and build one another up. And, and they partook regularly of the Lord's Supper and all. And, and what happened? God added daily to that church such as should be saved, right? Well, and God, you know, he's looking for where can I send my kids that they're going to be well taken care of. You do the same with your kids. You don't just let them go anywhere. You want to know where are they going, who's going to take care of them, right? And God does the same thing. And so by his grace, we, we are a place where, where he sends his people. And we say, thank you, Lord. And daily, we watch God add to our church. But some people will come into this growing church, and they'll say, man, I'm, I'm having a difficult time connecting and making friends. How do I make friends, and how do I connect and have meaningful relationships in, in a growing body such as ours, in something that's so big as ours? And there are many ways to do that, but one of the critical key ways is serving the Lord. I would invite you to get plugged in to some way that you can serve. You start meeting other people, and as you're using your gifts and talents to serve the Lord, you will establish friendships that will last a lifetime. You will experience God begin to build you up and to do this incredible work in you. See, the Bible not only gives to us God's revealed promises of life after death, it also gives us, listen, God's revealed purposes relating to life before death. Peter said this, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Pay attention to this last part of verse 9 because everything after this hinges on this point. He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart, to reach as many people and change as many people as he, as he can. But... Peter goes on to say, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it are going to be burned up. Therefore, 
Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Can I just submit to you that that part of verse 11 there is a rhetorical question? What kind of a person should you be? Well, the emphasis is, look, this world's about to hit something really hard. And people are going to hell. And God doesn't want that. And what does he want? He wants you to know him. He wants them to know him. He wants you to grow up and mature. He wants them to grow up and mature. And it all comes down to, am I living in preparation? And am I building other people up? That's what it's all about. Guys, here at Reliance Church, one of the values that we have, one of our core key values is that we value serving. And we articulate that value this way. We say that we are contributors. We are not consumers. Why? Because Jesus Christ was himself a servant. Mark 10, 45 tells us the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the Bible says that God expects nothing less from us. Again, it's not a have to, it's a get to. We get to do this. Paul told the Ephesians, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to sit at home and watch golf. No, that's not what he says. We're created, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Guys, translation, you're uniquely gifted, created, and strategically placed because God has something he wants you to do to build up his church. Not a corporate entity, people people. And he wants to move and work in your life to do it. Turn to the left. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. It's just a couple of pages over to the left. I want to look at just a few verses here in, in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 1, and I'll skip down to verse 11 and read that as well, but 11 and 12. But um, Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Hit the pause button right there. We hear calling, we think pastors have a calling on their lives. But, but do I, I don't have a calling. Yes, you do. Every one of us has a calling upon our life. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Go, skip down to verse 11. And he himself, the Lord Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For what? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints... That's my job for the work of the ministry. That's all of our job, right? For the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. Skip down to verse 15. Midway through, he says that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, that's all of us, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Put your name right next to that. You just... By what Ted supplies, by what Brenda supplies, by what Joe supplies, by what Susan supplies, right? According to the effective working by which, Paul repeats himself just in case you didn't get the memo, by which every part, Sam, Sue, go on down the list, every part does what? Does it share? And what does it cause? It causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You see, what Paul says is this, guys, that Jesus, rather than being a consumer, that he came as a servant. And that having served you and I so wonderfully, so thoroughly, 
hey, we now have a duty to serve. It's not a have to, it's a get to, right? And even though we are uniquely created and gifted with individual talents, those unique gifts are, be, are meant to be contributed to the larger whole. Translation, whoever you are, God's placed you here, he's uniquely gifted you. Now, I'm not talking about superstar talents. Some of you have magnificent talents. Some of you, you think, what can I add to the equation? The Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about different spiritual gifts and how God, you know, gifts different people. And he basically, he addresses two common problems that people have as it pertains to how God has gifted them. One of the problems is people think too much of their gift. They think too much of themselves, right? Paul talks about this. But the other equally common problem, people think too little of themselves. They think too little of their gifts. They think, what can I do? What can I add to it? One of the unique things, by the way, that we experience as a larger church is that it's easier and easier for people to say no when they hear that there are needs within the body. Why? Because they go, there's thousands of people here. Like, you know, somebody, certainly somebody's going to respond to that. Right? Or they think, I don't, I don't necessarily know the person who's asking me for help, so it's easier for me to tell them no, right? And the thing is, a lot of times people will go, I, I just don't feel like I'm capable. I don't think like I can do that. Hey, let me tell you something. You jump in your car, you drive down the freeway, get on the 215, head north, get off on Scott Road, go east a mile and look on your left, and there's a big old church there, thousands of people in it. And you know how that church started? He took a young couple, the husband, who was dumb as a box of rocks, and said, start a Bible study in your home with six people. I had no business planning a church. If you would have told me what was going to become of that, I would have told you, you hit your head. I didn't know what I was doing. I was an idiot. But all I knew was, man, we need a church in this town, one that teaches the Bible. We need some Christian friends. That was our motivation, selfish as it is. I need some Christian friends. I need to be in a place that teaches the Bible. And we don't find it here, so we're going to start it. That's what we did. The Bible says God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. Man, poster child for that. God did an incredible work. And some of y'all, you think, man, you're thinking too little of your gifts. You just need to get over yourself because God's gifted you. He's placed you. He wants to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all you can ask or think. And it just, it starts with just stepping out and saying, here I am. Send me. I want you to understand, the gospel is filled with stories of ordinary people called to ordinary service. Just ordinary things. Think about Peter in Luke chapter 5. What did Jesus call him to do? He said, hey, I need, you, I need your help. Can I use your boat? That's what he called him to do. Ordinary guy, ordinary thing. Servants at the wedding feast in John chapter 2 where Jesus performed his first miracle when he turned water into wine. Right? What did he ask those guys to do, those servants? He just asked them to fill water jugs. Can you fill a water jug? Right? That's all he asked them to do. The apostles in Mark chapter 6, all he asked them to do was feed people. Can you feed people? That's what he asked them to do. And I want you to take those three examples, think, go, go into, into your mind, think about the biblical stories, two really important aspects that we learn from each one of those stories and many other stories if we take the time to look for them in the Bible. Number one, in each instance of those three examples I just gave you, their service 
involved sacrifice. They had to make a sacrifice in order to serve. Think about Peter. Jesus said, can I use your boat? But when did he ask him that? He just got off the night shift. He just worked all night. He just washed his nets. He's putting everything away. He's thinking about, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to get some breakfast, and I'm going to go to bed. And now all of a sudden, this guy says, hey, would you go, would you, would, can I use your boat and borrow you? Right? The disciples, when Jesus asked them to, to feed the multitudes, they were tired, and they were hungry, and listen, they were missing a scheduled vacation that they were supposed to be on right at that point when Jesus said, hey, you feed them. The servants in Cana, when Jesus was performing, performed that miracle, turned the water into wine, they were already busy serving when Jesus said, hey, you know, would you do this, right? And so the first huge lesson is that service is sacrificial. It doesn't always conveniently fit into our schedules. And sometimes, you know, we mistakenly think that if it's difficult or if it's inconvenient, that it's not from God. Guys, I don't see that in my Bible. I don't see that in the Bible. It's not the example we have in Scripture. Here's the second lesson that we see in those three examples that I told you. In each instance, obedient sacrifice was followed by a miracle. It's followed by a miracle. Jesus said to Peter, hey, ordinary guy, I'm going to ask you to do an ordinary thing. Can I use your boat? And what ends up happening is they get this miraculous catch of fish by the end of the story. When Peter had fished all night, caught nothing, and they fill up two boats to the point that they're sinking, there's such a huge miracle. The, the disciples, when they're exhausted and, and missing their vacation, and Jesus asked them to feed the multitudes, they saw a miracle. 5,000 people fed from a little boy's lunch. They're like, this is crazy, right? The, the servants at the wedding feast in Cana, Jesus turns water into wine, Right? Incredible miracle. Who got to see it? Did the guests at the wedding feast know that Jesus had turned water into wine? They didn't have a clue. Who's the only one that got to see the miracle? The servants. See, when you step out to serve the Lord, you see a miracle. This week, last week, I, I preached on Sunday. Brenda and I ran down to the airport right after I preached. We got on a plane and we went out to Tennessee. As many of you know, we sent uh, Pastor Scott Losey out to uh, Mount Juliet, Tennessee, and he went to plant a church. Let me tell you a little bit about planting a church. Um, there, in church planting, there's a vernacular. It's called, um, it's called parachuting in. And if you leave your home state or your hometown and you go to a place that's not, that you don't know anybody, you're parachuting in. Well, Scott Lewis, he parachuted in to Mount Juliet to plant a church. And so what you need to do in that situation is you have to get, you have to move and you have to give time getting settled in. You have to take time to get a job. And, and, you, and it, takes, it takes a lot of work before you can begin the actual work of, of planting the church. And so, you know, we discerned, man, they went out in May, they need some encouragement, and I told Brenda, hey, work it out with Autumn, but, you know, tell them we're going to come out. Well, Scott heard this, and he told Autumn, we're not, we're not, I'm not ready for them to come out, because he felt like he hadn't done enough, you know. And, uh, and you know, he, he's gotten there, he, he got a job working for, for a telecommunications company, um, but, but man, you know, he and his family all moved out. They're still living in their RV, uh, still trying to get established. They've just, you know, they started this, this fledgling Bible study, and Scott's thinking, I don't have enough accomplishment for my pastor to come out, and he doesn't realize just how much he needed to be encouraged. Brenda and I knew it. 
the Lord had given us discernment, my, my wife first, as usual, um, and uh, man, they need some encouragement. So we just went out there to encourage them. Well, we surprised them, throw the first slide up. So we surprised them, and we brought their friends Paul and Brandy with us. They're there in the middle of the picture. Scott and Autumn's best friends, and they didn't know we were bringing them with them. Autumn was suspect, and she kind of thought maybe we would, but we did some, some sneaky, shady stuff to, or she wouldn't figure it out. And um, to Paul and Brandy came, and man, they just lit up. And by the second day, Pastor Scott was saying, this is exactly what I needed, man. I need to be encouraged. Next slide. So they've got a little Bible study they've started. This is the house that they're meeting in. And we met together to, to pray and to thank the Lord. Well, thank the Lord for what? Next slide. Brenda took this picture. They're thanking the Lord, by the way, for that guy in the middle right there, I think. But um, good-looking guy in the middle right there. Anyway. Brenda took this picture, and uh, I put it up on, uh, on my Instagram, and uh, just, you know, the, 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 the post there, a long history of crazy adventures and lots of laughs with these guys, hashtag Reliance Church Plants, and, um, and, and I think Brenda uh, put it up on her Instagram as well. No, you didn't, it was just, it's just on mine. Okay, so and in, at any rate, the Mount Juliet was mentioned, and we get this reply, it's just some random post I put up on my Instagram, Success Lab HQ, faith is everything, we're in the neighborhood and we wanted to say hi, when you need an office for a few hours, a place to meet with a group or teach a class, we have space for you, yeah. right? I'm thinking, this is God. See, understand, that very morning, Scott had gone to a place trying to secure a place for, for the work and, um, you know, for the Bible study to meet in and they turned him down. So... PT Reliance uh, at Success Lab uh, HQ. Hi, thanks for reaching out. I will definitely have Pastor Scott stop by and say, hey, and they said, great. Next slide. This is the place that we go and look at, right? So go, just roll through a couple slides here. So hello. I mean, that looks like Reliance Church for crying out loud. Um, and, uh, and so... So we meet the, the gal who sent us this, this Instagram response. She's a believer. We're, we're praying right there in the space. They've got children's ministry space, the whole bit. Um, long story short, Scott gets this place. They start tonight, right? God is so good. Uh, last slide there, there's a, there's a prayer request slide, and, uh, and I'm just going to briefly show you, they got some prayer requests. I'm putting this up at the end, and I'd ask you guys to take a picture of it and make sure you keep them in prayer. Um, so we'll put this back up at the end, but listen, I want to close with this, because here's what I want you to hear. Um, when, when I planted this church, Scott Losey and Autumn, they came, not, not, not even quite 13 years ago, and you know what they were doing when they came here? Emptying trash cans and changing diapers. He wasn't a pastor. He didn't know being a pastor was going to be even on his radar. He just came because he felt the Lord calling him to be part of a church family. And what God did in his life through serving the Lord is that he connected him with some of his best friends. He caused real profound growth in Scott as Scott worked to grow other people. Now, some of y'all, I'm not saying that, hey, you need to serve the Lord because you're going to go out and plant a church, but you might. You might end up out on the mission field. You might end up experiencing all these things, but I guarantee you, 
That is, if you obey the Lord and say, I, I'm persuaded, the Bible's clear, I've been gifted, I've been called, I've been strategically placed, and I'm going to say yes to God. I guarantee you, not only will he use you to grow other people, you will grow like you never thought possible in your Christian walk. You will never regret serving the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm just going to summarize this, I won't have you turn there, but Paul says basically there that our gifts are given to us strategically by God. And that they are all diverse, but they are all essential. And the health of the, of the body, he says, depends on everybody using their independent gifts in an interdependent way. That's a family. And here's the deal. If you are here and you are a consumer and you are not a contributor, let me just tell you, you're missing out. You're missing out because it's not a have to, it's a get to. I will tell you that the body is the poorer for you're not serving. The family is the poorer for you're not serving. But I'm telling you, you're the poorer if you're, if you're a consumer and not a contributor. And it's all about offering yourself to the Lord so he can work in you and he can work through you. You'll grow, you'll help others grow. Hey, you just might change the world through your obedience to the Lord. I want to close with this. Jesus said this, Matthew 16, 25, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.